0: Good morning once again. Uh, great to see you guys and to be with you. And before we jump in this morning, uh, I'm just going to add to the, the information you've already received this morning, but I, I want to take a minute and highlight our, our sound guy. You know, we don't often highlight guys at the back, and so I'm going to invite Dan Bergen to the stage, and we, we just want to highlight our amazing sound guy this morning. You guys can give our sound guy a hand, even at home as you're watching online. Just running a great mix this morning, Dan. I, I must say, it is, it is excellent. So I, I just thought it was so excellent, we got to bring you up here. Uh, no, the reason I'm bringing Dan up here, and we'll, uh, we'll communicate more uh, in the upcoming week. Uh, but as many of you know, uh, we have been discerning uh, the direction of our worship and arts ministry at Sunwest uh, for the last few months. Uh, and Dan was on staff a long time ago as a worship and arts pastor at the very beginning uh, when SunWest first started, or shortly after it started. Uh, and after some discernment with our worship teams and media and tech teams and some interviews, um, Dan has accepted the role of our worship and arts pastor here, and we're excited to bring him on staff. So a special welcome to you, Dan. Thank you. We'll see what your face looks like without a mask some other time. There you go. Ah! <laughs> Anyways, we're excited to have Dan on, on, back on staff, um, and look, looking forward to that. Uh, and uh, as if we arranged it, we are talking about worship in our, in our current series, and so we're doing like a four, it's four series kind of in a, in a larger package, it's called the Shalom Project, and we're looking at uh, this idea of uh, Shalom, and particularly we're looking at the relationship of God uh, and humanity uh, to begin uh, this series, and we're looking at the the idea and the topic of worship. Uh, and so part of the reason we're doing this, we, we've been talking about this word shalom uh, for quite some time. Uh, and in, in fact, the way the Lord has kind of led us uh, the last few years at, at SunWest West. Um, has led us towards this word. You know, we've always kind of taught the ideas around this word, and then we, we found a word that describes the things that we've been talking about all along. And so this led to the changing of a vision statement uh, a couple of years ago, in which we're just kind of beginning to unpack and dive into. And the vision statement is sh- Shalom Breakers becoming Shalom Makers. Uh, our mission statement, which you hear every Sunday, is that Sun exists to guide all people into lifelong, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, and that statement has remained relatively unchanged for Son existence. That becomes the main thing that we're all about. Our, our energy as an, organi- as an organism, as a church, goes towards uh, guiding people into lifelong, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, and what does that look like over time as that happens, as people follow Jesus in a lifelong relationship? We see that people uh, go from being shalom breakers... And become shalom makers. Uh, and that word, as we said last week, is not a common everyday word. You don't go to the, uh, the workplace uh, or you're sitting around the kitchen table uh, and this word doesn't just bubble up in, in our conversations. That's because it's a Hebrew word. And so sometimes we translate words from other languages into English and our English words kind of can encompass the meaning, the full meaning of that word. Uh, but uh, shalom is one of those words that we don't really have an English equivalent for, uh, and so we kind of have a choice. And we use lots of words to describe the one word, uh, or we actually create uh, this uh, vision statement with the word, and then spend uh, our energy in our in our teaching uh, breaking down what this actually means. And so we've decided to do that. We've decided to kind of pick a short, memorable phrase. Um, as we said last week, can you recite the vision statement for me? Go. Yeah. Uh, shalom breakers become shalom makers. A few of you guys got it, uh, but it's it's very memorable, uh, and that's part of the reason that we chose it that, so that as a as a faith community, we can say this is uh, what uh, as we follow Jesus, this is actually what we're expecting things to look like. Now let's talk about what this word means. Uh, right in the middle of the vision statement, which is where we've been focusing last week uh, and in the first part of uh, the series, is the word becoming. And from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, we see the truth that we become what we worship, that we were created to worship. This is what we spent time on uh, last week uh, talking about. And even if you don't Uh, intentionally choose something to worship, you will choose something to worship. This is what the Bible calls idolatry, uh, that people worship idols all the time, not just things constructed with human hands, but things that we make in our hearts. It could be a career, it could be a person, it could be an idea, it could, you know, whatever thing you're giving your energy and your affection to can actually become an idol. And we all know people that have given their lives towards something and it has changed who they are. This is part of the way that we were wired to be worshipers. And we were created to worship God, and as we worship God, we are made into His likeness. Uh, and so if, you, if you're kind of curious more about that, you can, tune, you can go back to last week's message and, uh, and hear that. But Shalom talks about the harmony of four relationships between uh, God and man, between man and others, and man and the world. And all four of these relationships uh, working together. And we see this picture in the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and Revelation 21 and 22. Those are the bookends of your Bible. And everything in between is really uh, the discussion of shalom breakers becoming shalom makers and the process uh, of God's shalom project and what what he's doing. Uh, The world uh, was created... Uh, to be God's dwelling place. We were created to live in a relationship with God. We were created to be uh, in shalom with one another, uh, but primarily we were created to be in relationship with God, which affects all of those three relationships. Many scholars have noted that in the beginning of Genesis 1, which we spent some time uh, at last week, that the creation of the world parallels uh, the temple. The way that the the creation account is articulated actually echoes the realities of uh, Israel's temple. And Genesis 1 and 2 parallels this language and the concept of temple. And basically, the world was created to be God's dwelling place. And God creates on day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6 of creation. And then on the seventh day, it says that God rested. And we often think that rested means that God uh, took a break from his work. Whew! You could also view the word rested in the same way when we say god is resting in that place which means that god's presence is lingering or staying in that place that creation was actually created to be the resting place of god the the place where god fully dwells where god can be found where god's presence can be enjoyed god living god dwelling God resting. And so we see this picture of God fully present in the beginning, walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam and Eve getting along. They, they were created in God's image to be God's image bearers, to be God's reimagers. We imagers uh, We talked about the Greek word last week, the, the icon of God, to reflect God's image to the rest of the world. But as Adam and Eve, as free beings, chose to go their own way, that break in relationship, that shalom breaking between them and God actually had an impact on all of their relationships. So the worship between humanity and God actually impacted the relationship that humanity had in all directions. So as a result of that breaking relationship, it severed the relationship between Adam and Eve. It separated the relationship between how they understood themselves and their identity and how shame kind of entered the story. It affected the relationship with the world so God removed Adam and Eve from the garden and sometimes we view this move of God moving them uh, east of Eden out of the garden as a as a discipline you know we gotta discipline Adam and Eve and get them out of the garden and so for sure there's a consequence to the sin the breaking of Shalom that Adam and Eve had done and discipline is part of it but it was actually also for their own protection and we don't talk about this or think about this often but God protected Adam and Eve by moving them out of the garden God wanted to continue to have relationship with humanity. That's always been his heart. But this relationship had to be veiled. It had to be protected. There had to be layers to it. There there was a degree of separation because sin separates. And we know that God is holy. And holy means set apart, unique, other. And so God called us to be set apart. But when we decided not to be set apart and to be God's, there was a separation that happened. God's essence is love. His predisposition towards us is relationship But in relationship to us, God is holy. And that holiness of God actually has has historically made it difficult for humanity to be in relationship with God. And so God, for their protection, for their well-being, actually removed them from His presence. There was a separation from the presence of God. Now, we know that God would continue to initiate initiate relationship with humanity, continue to pursue them. But it wasn't the same as it was in the beginning. And so, this relationship between God and humanity has implications for us individually, but also has implications for the entire world and all of our relationships. And so, we look at this vertical relationship in the beginning of the series, and we become like we worship. And so, God's calling us back to worship Him. Worship is the foundation on which all of the other relationships rest. Our broken relationship with God is where everything went south, and our right relationship with God is the beginning where everything gets restored and redeemed. This is the key to everything. Worship between God and man is the key that affects everything else. You know, it's like a key that you put in the door, and it's got to be the right fit, <clears throat> or else the door is not going to open. The fit that we were created for was worship. I remember I used to have this old, uh, Cavalier. I don't know if some of you guys remember it. Uh, nice blue rust bucket. Uh, and, and the, the hood was like an aftermarket hood. And so my father-in-law, uh, you know, wanted to, wanted to make sure it didn't rust further. And so he put like this big, uh, matte black coating on it. So I had like this black hood, uh, blue car. Uh, and it was awesome. I, I rode that thing. F- I drove that thing for a very, very long time. And I remember, uh, one of our youth leaders, I don't know why he was using the car uh, for some youth event, uh, but his name is Gage. Some of you guys might know Gage is about this big. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say red hair. I was, used to have red hair. I it <laughs> that way. Uh, sorry, Gage. Uh, but Gage was, was driving the car, and he broke the key off in the trunk of the car. Uh, and I was so frustrated at the time. I was like, "You broke my key in the trunk of the car, but I will tell you what that. Breaking of the key in the trunk of my car got me out of so many uh, hoops. I'll tell you why. Because I locked my keys in the car more more than anybody else I know. Up until that point in my life, I called AMA uh, so many times. Uh, Sherry Feenster, who's on staff, I think I've called AMA using her membership three times alone. um, Because I would lock the trunk of the keys in my car. After that moment, I could get into my car at any point. Because all I had to do was take any key put it into my trunk, and it would turn because the, the, the actual key was still in there. And then it was like, you know, the two-door car. And so me being a un, very unflexible person, you know, I'd have to crawl and wiggle my way kind of through the car uh, and make my way to the front and then unlock it. But I didn't have to call AMA anymore because I had the key to get into my car all the time. <laughs> Sorry, quick rabbit trail. I, one time I was, I remember we were out shopping for a van. We took the Cavalier to shop for the van. We were in the middle of Airdrie, or sorry, north of Airdrie and at this acreage, not close to anything. And so we were looking at this van, and I said, thanks, and you know, I tried to go away, and then that moment I locked the keys in my car, and I would go and I said to the guy I was, we were looking to shop the van from, uh, I said, I locked the keys in my car. I was like, do you have any key?" He's like, yeah, I have keys. I was like, can I use that to get into my car? He's like, that's not going to (laughs) work. You know, the keys are specific for locks. I I was like, no, trust me. Just give me any key. And I took his key, he walks out with me, and he sees me put his key in the trunk, and I open it, and he's like, what? He's like, (laughs) anyways. So worship, worship is the key that actually unlocks all of these shalom relationships, that God pursued a relationship with us, and as we respond in worship to God, it actually sets us right again with God, because worship involves repenting, it revolves turning away from our sin, and it involves coming to God as He is, as God, and recognizing who we are under God. And we respond to God in worship, and it actually begins the process of shalom going out from there. And so the vertical relationship is the key uh, to shalom. The Bible tells us that people couldn't just worship God in any way they liked, and this is important as we, as we dive in this morning. You couldn't uh, Historically, people couldn't just come to God and worship them however they liked. And it already begins. After Adam and Eve, they had Cain and Abel, and Cain and Abel give an offering to God. And the Bible doesn't tell us the details, but it says that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God and Cain's sacrifice was not. That there was an expectation of how people were actually supposed to come to God, to worship God. And this develops over time as God begins to call the people to himself to be his re imagers, so that the blessed to be a blessing, to be a light to the nation. God begins by calling an individual. He calls Abraham. And to Abraham, he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed by you. And so God makes this covenant with Abraham that he is going to actually begin this project with Abraham, that Abraham is going to re-image him to the world. And Abraham, uh, this covenant gets passed on to Isaac, gets passed on to Jacob. If you know the biblical story, Jacob gets renamed Israel. And then this begins the nation of Israel, and God has this covenant that he continues with the nation of Israel. And this is a unique relationship. God is choosing a nation, not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the world. Not just for them as a nation, but that every nation would actually be blessed through this one nation. And a primary theme in this covenant was that God was calling a people to himself to worship him, to worship him alone as the one true God. And as we looked at Exodus 20 last week, that's why he was adamant that they shouldn't put any other gods before him, that they shouldn't worship idols because they were created to worship him. And as they worship him, they become like him and represent him in the world. We become what we worship. And so God called Israel, and get this, he said to be holy as I am holy. To be set apart as I am set apart. For the sake of the world. And what this meant was they couldn't just worship God any way they wanted. They couldn't just live life the way they wanted. There was a particular way that God explained to them to worship them. And now it breaks down for Israel. If you read the book of Leviticus, uh, if some of you guys have made it through that book, you know there's a lot of rules and regulations. Uh, But we need to recognize that God actually gave Israel the way to worship Him. Why? Because God wanted relationship with them. It wasn't to restrict relationship, but it was actually to enable them to be a holy people, to be in relationship with God. And throughout the story of Israel, you know, there's these moments where God's presence comes and encounters His people, and this is referred to as the Shekinah of God, which means glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God, it's it's God's presence more fully in a moment than anywhere else, more fully in a place than somewhere else. And we see this Shekinah glory of God that Moses encounters this glory of God in a bush. We see that the Israelites, uh, throughout their story, they're led by the Shekinah glory of God, that they're following this cloud by day and fire by night when they're in the wilderness. And so God's glory, His presence, is with them at a little bit of a distance, but it's with them, leading them, guiding them. But God's heart all along was to be at home with His people. So the Israelites at the time, when this was happening, we were tenting all over in the wilderness for 40 years, and God wanted to be home with them. And so God set up tent with them. And this is what the word tabernacle means. Uh, God set up a tabernacle. It was a tent for the Shekinah glory of God, for God to be present in it. So the Israelites were tenting. God shows up in a tent. I guess you could say that this was Intense. It was an intense moment uh, in the wilderness. So, Moses, so Israelite is around God. The God is close. The God is trying to make His home um, among them, and He's inviting people to worship Him. Uh, but people couldn't just worship Him in any, they, any way they wanted. Uh, and sometimes that this had happened, and there was uh, you know, there's drastic circumstances. In one story in Leviticus, Aaron, who's the high priest, it says Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers Put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out of the presence, the Shekinah glory of the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, I will be proved holy in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. A drastic story uh, in Leviticus, but but it goes to show. That people just couldn't come to God any way they wanted. That God was holy, and He was calling us to be holy, to be set apart. And when we ignored that, there was consequences for how the people of God uh, experienced Him. Now, as the Israelites kind of moved through their tenting days, uh, and they make it into the Promised Land, the area where they were going to settle, uh, they built a permanent temple, uh, and so uh, they take the the tabernacle they build a permanent structure, and it was built in Jerusalem, and it was built during the reign of King Solomon uh, around 957 B.C., and it stood for about four centuries until the Babylonians came, uh, and uh, there was a destruction of the temple in 587 uh, B.C. at that time. And so there was the temple that they built uh, to house to the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. There was a second built on the same location in 516 B.C., Uh, Persia eventually took over Babylon and then allowed the Israelites to rebuild the temple. And when the the second temple was rebuilt, it says that the people there who had seen the first temple were sad because the second temple just was was nothing in comparison to the first temple. And it didn't fill with the Shekinah glory of God. But the prophet Haggai said that there was a time coming in the future when the second temple would be greater than the first temple and the glory would outshine that of the first temple. And we know that wouldn't happen uh, for 500 years later until Jesus came into the temple, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, and so we had two temples uh, in, in, the, in the history of Israel leading up to the time of Jesus, but in both the tabernacle and the temple, there was something called, uh, that was referred to as the Holy of Holies. Everybody say, Holy of Holies. So in the Holy of Holies, it was a place within the tabernacle or the temple uh, Where God's Shekinah glory rested, where his presence rested, the place on earth that was a foretaste of what was what God had intended. God rested there. He dwelt there. He lived there uniquely in this space that was more unique than anywhere else in the world. It was the place where heaven meets earth. And in Exodus, it describes the Holy of Holies, it says, put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant law before the atonement cover that is over the tablets of the Covenant law, where I will meet with you. So it's saying there's this, there's the space in the Holy of Holies that is inside the temple or inside the the tabernacle, and it's separated by a curtain, and that curtain separates the Shekinah glory of God from his people and from the world. And once a year, as it says in Exodus 30, once a year Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. So only one time a year, the high priest, who is was Aaron in this, in this situation, would go into the Holy of Holies, would go into the dwelling place of God, the resting place of God, the place where God Shekinah was dwelling, uh, was resting, and this was a profound honor, uh, but it was also came with profound fear because of God's presence and God's holiness. Nobody else was allowed in this place other than the high priest once a year. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you're not allowed to go. I, um, you know, when my, my kids were younger, uh, quite a bit younger, although I can see it happening now, uh, my youngest son Silas put... A sign on his door that said, "Anyone with the name Joel may not enter." <laughs> his oldest brother's name is Joel. If you didn't know, that. Um, but the Holy of Holies—it's it's like it had the sign: "No one except the high priest can enter," and only at that time can he enter once a year. And so, uh, tradition has it, and we don't—we can't verify this through the scripture but tradition has it that that they would actually tie a, a rope around the high priest's ankle just in case as they went into the holy presence of god if the priest were to die they could drag him back out so you can imagine being the priest and they put bells they put bells on the uh you know on his body so they could hear the bells ringing and if they stopped hearing the bells then uh, they could pull his body out so uh you know you're getting ready for this awesome moment but you don't know if you're gonna uh, come out so once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Make atonement, which means uh, you know, seek forgiveness and reconciliation between God and his people so that God will continue to be uh, with his people. Atonement means being at one with God. Uh, so as we look elsewhere in Leviticus, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two sons of Aaron and died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come where." Whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. And this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. And then it kind of articulates all the things that Aaron must do to be ready to be in God's presence. But the point remains, someone had to be right with God in order to be in that level of God's presence. And so what we see... Is that there was concentric circles of holiness in your scriptures. You had the holy of holies, which was inside the temple, and you had the there was the temple courts that was inside the temple. Then to the temple itself that was in Jerusalem. And then there was Judea, and then there was Gentile, the the non-Israelites uh, where they would be living. And so, as people got closer, there was more and more restrictions the closer that you got. And so, as a quick foreshadow, everyone thought, and many still do, that the point is that to try and get as close to the Holy of Holies as you can. The point was to to be more and more in God's presence, but God's plan all along was that the world would be his temple, and the Holy of Holies was just the beginning. The plan from the beginning was that God's presence would go out into the world. And so the Israelites kind of misunderstood this, uh, understandably so. Uh, they, they kind of f- felt like the Holy of Holies, that was the center of everything. And then Jesus, the Messiah, which means anointed one, shows up on the scene, and we see that the scriptures start to make these references to Jesus as the temple. In John chapter 1, it says that, in the beginning was the word, the word with God was God, and that God himself, in verse 14, John 1, 14 says, came and dwelt among us, the word there literally means came and pitched a tent among us. One translation says, he tabernacled among us. That once again in the person of Jesus, God's Shekinah glory, his presence comes not into a temple, but into a human body. So Jesus shows up on the scene and makes his way towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the place where the physical temple is, and now you have Jesus coming who is actually hosting the presence of God. And this is what happens. Uh, the Jewish leaders demanded, What are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And so the, 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 the Jewish leaders are upset because Jesus showed up at the temple and started turning uh, tables over because uh, they were turning the temple into a marketplace. And he said, My father's house was intended to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. And so he's upset. He's flipping over tables. And so the religious leaders are reacting. And so Jesus says, uh, they want to sign. And so Jesus said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. He says, what? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Jesus actually refers to himself as the temple, that God's presence uniquely dwells in him, that heaven and earth actually meet in him. In Mark chapter 1, we see that at the time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The word torn open here in the original language, in the Greek language, uh, comes from the root schizo, which means to split. That's where we get schizophrenia from, split personality. Uh, it's saying the heavens split apart. They were torn open, and then the dove descended on him, And again, the Greek language literally right there is in him. The Spirit of God actually entered into him. The presence, the Shekinah presence of God comes out of heaven, the heaven split open, and then it enters into the person of Jesus. In Colossians 1 verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. All of the fullness of God, the Shekinah glory of God, dwelling in the person of Jesus. Now this word schizo is used twice in the book of Mark. Once in Mark chapter 1, and then the second time in Mark chapter 15 right here. With a loud cry, this is on the, when Jesus is on the cross, Jesus breathed his last, the curtain temple was torn into from top to bottom. Schizo. Schizo. First, the heavens are torn in two as the glory of God enters into the person of Jesus. And then secondly, in Mark 15, Jesus' body is torn in two. And as that is torn in two, the the curtain in the temple that separates the Shekinah of glory from the rest of the world is torn in two. The moment that Jesus' body is broken and torn in two, is when the temple curtain was torn in two. What Mark wants us to understand is that God's Shekinah glory, his presence, is no longer held in the temple. It was in Jesus, and now because of what Jesus has done through his cross, through the suffering on a cross, through his resurrection, he has made the presence of God available to the world. The presence of God has been launched into the world, it cannot be contained in one place or in one room. It is access- it's accessible. It's not held in a temple or a special room. It is available for everyone, not just special people. Now, the second thing we see in the, in the New Testament uh, is that Jesus is not only the temple, he's also referred to as the great high priest, the ultimate high priest. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice. Which can, never be ta- which can never take away sins. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemy, enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he had made perfect forever those who are being made holy." We see implications of this in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, Therefore, since we have a high priest, Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now check it. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, not with fear. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This should blow our minds. It should blow our minds. The presence of God, in which has been separated by degrees from humanity throughout history, has now been available, made available to every person because of Christ. And because of that, we can boldly approach the throne of grace something that Aaron's sons were never able to do. Something that Aaron was only able to do once a year. Now, Every moment of every day, we have access to the presence of God. Isn't that a mind-blowing, beautiful thing? It's amazing. Now, when Jesus was doing ministry in John 16, uh, it says... uh, He's speaking to his disciples because the time of his death and resurrection was coming. He says, very truly I tell you, it is, good for, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so Jesus is referring here to the, the advocate, which is the Holy Spirit. It's better for you that I actually leave earth. I go to the right hand of the Father because when I leave, the Father is going to send his spirit, his presence to be your advocate to be your helper to be your guide and even more than that we see in acts chapter 2 as after jesus was resurrected the followers of jesus are waiting for the holy spirit to come and the holy spirit comes in acts chapter 2 and it fills the people so we see this progression that's starting to happen in the scriptures and in history And God starts to fill people with his spirit. The Shekinah glory of God, this unapproachable presence, now isn't just available to people, but it's actually making its way into people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And then Jesus, so, so we see the importance of this. If you're going to house the Holy Spirit, if you're actually going to be a temple of the glory of God, the presence of God, then it matters how you live. It matters what you do. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, it's the pure in heart that will see God. James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You know, Paul is clear that what we're talking about is not a salvation issue. You are not saved. You are not made right with God based on how good you are or on how holy you are. You're made right with God only because of what Jesus has done. Yet your capacity to host the presence of God in your life is determined by how you walk with God. Our capacity to carry, to host, to present the Shekinah of glory to God to the world around us is limited or unleashed depending on how we choose to live. We, or I, and you are temples of the Holy Spirit that God wants to dwell in. In Romans 12 it says, and so dear brothers I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let." let them be a living and holy sacrifice the kind that will that he will find acceptable this is truly the way to worship him don't copy the behavior and customs of this world but let god transform you into a new person by changing the way you think then you will learn to know god's will for you which is good and pleasing and perfect and so god comes to dwell in us as individuals it's amazing uh, but it doesn't even stop there paul also says that we are the temple we together make up the temple. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy, and you together are that temple. And in 1, in 1 Corinthians 6, the you is singular. In 1 Corinthians 3, the you is plural. And what Paul is helping us to understand is that, yes, we are created as individuals to actually carry God's presence. And that really works well for us in our individualized Western society, nice me and God kind of storyline, but God doesn't let it just stay there because we were actually created to worship God together as a community, that God somehow dwells among his faith community in a unique way. So that means everything you do Is worship When we think about the individual temple, your life, your body, everything you do is worship. Everything you do has implications for how you host the presence of God in your life, how you speak, how you live, how you run your business, how you function as an employee, how you do relationships, how you treat others. You are the holy of holies. You are created to actually host the presence of God. And you might think, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not, Adequate enough to do that. Well, you're only adequate because Jesus has actually made us ad- adequate to carry His presence. Uh, you know, there was a donkey that carried Jesus' presence into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and if a donkey can carry Jesus, then you can too. What we do with our bodies matter. What we do with our voices matter. What we do with our influence matter. God's plan to make the world His resting place, filled with His glory, includes you. You worshiping is actually part of His redemptive plan bringing his presence wherever you go wherever you are his shekinah glory is not just held to one corner or one room it's actually going with you as a follower of jesus and paul is saying we ought to take this seriously as worshipers as hosts of the presence of god now the corporate temple it means that this has huge implications for how we understand worship gathering and we're going to we're going to dive specifically into this more next week But all that to say, it's not just about you. It's about us. God is doing something in our world that is beyond us as individuals. He's doing something through us as a community. Your unique story, your individual story, is just one part of God's larger story that he is writing through all of us. The corporate gathering of worship matters. Worship is warfare. If God is actually reclaiming and redeeming the whole world to be his resting place then wherever we are worshiping wherever we're going we're actually claiming that space as God's space we know that the end of history ends with the Shekinah glory of God filling the world but we get to be his presence increasingly in our world as we worship together. In Psalm 22, Dalen referenced this earlier, it says that God inhabits the praises of his people. And so when we come together corporately as a community to worship together, there's something unique about how God's presence is actually dwelling with us and among us. Now, that was a lot of info. But my prayer is that I hope that you can start to see the scope of what God is doing, what he started in the beginning and what he's continuing to do and how your story fits into the grand story of God. And the clincher, the the hinge point in the story is the decision that we have to worship God. As individuals, yes, but also as a community. And we often talk about saying yes to Jesus. God has uh, invited all of us to be in a lifelong relationship with Him. Uh, But there's an ongoing yes, even after you decide to say yes to Jesus, there's an ongoing yes that God invites us to continually make. The Bible calls us being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is saying yes to the Holy Spirit. And we see in the book of Acts in the New Testament that this isn't just a one-time event, that, that God continues to fill His people, singular and plural, with His Spirit, with His presence. And so as we worship, it is actually this this response of saying, uh, recognizing the way that we've broken shalom and coming back to God and saying, forgive me, God. I want to be a hosting place for your presence. I want to be part of what you're doing in the world. I want to choose to worship you. I want you to be the number one thing in my life. Holy Spirit, would you fill me? Would you work through me? And so I'm going to invite you as we worship to close the service to say yes to the Holy Spirit maybe for the first time uh, maybe for the hundredth time but God invites us to continue to come back and worship, worship with him and to be filled with his spirit and sometimes when we're filled with the Holy Spirit it's accompanied by, ex- by certain experiences but it doesn't always have to be it doesn't always work that way but it's our role simply to respond to God by saying Holy Spirit you're welcome here Come and dwell in my life. Come and take up residence. Come and make your tent in my body. Come and be present in me. Come and work through me. I respond in worship to you. So I'm going to invite you to to stand as we respond to God, who is always pursuing and initiating, and invite His Spirit to fill. David in the Old Testament, he had a prayer. He said, Lord, show me if there's any offensive way in me and I'd invite you to to pray that as God calls us to be a set-apart people that we would pray, Lord, show me if there's any offensive way in me. And as we worship, you just, you know, you can confess those things and recognize where you've fallen short and then invite the Holy Spirit to fill you. So, Father, we thank you that you were... Determined from the very beginning to dwell among your people. Lord, we thank you that you had a glorious plan of how you were, were going to fill the earth. Lord, we thank you that we get the privilege of being a part of that story. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you now uh, to again fill us as individuals, Lord, that you would fill us, that you would come into our lives, that we would be your Your vessels, we would be your hosts, that we would re image you very clearly in the world around us because it's your spirit in us. Lord, I pray for us as a community as we gather that you would dwell among the praises of your people. Lord, that your spirit would come as we sing, as we respond, as we give our lives to you as a community. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. close our service, we'll have prayer teams available uh, at the front if you'd like prayer for anything. Uh, They would love to pray for you. Uh, um, Maybe it's uh, pertaining to what we've spoken about this morning and uh, being filled with the Spirit. They'd love to chat with you, pray with you. It could be about anything else. Um, But we began in Genesis 1 by talking about how the world was created to be God's resting and dwelling place. And in God's uh, process of actually. Uh, his Shalom project of redeeming and uh, redeeming the world and calling us to Himself. Uh, our choice to worship is kind of uh, right there in the middle of the story. Not that everything depends on us, but our but our participation in how that story works itself out is dependent on how we respond. And so I would encourage you. To continue to respond and worship, not just on a Sunday, but recognizing that you worship God with your life, that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that God actually created you to re-image Him to the world in everything, not just on a couple of hours on a Sunday, but in how you live, how you speak, the quiet times you have, the busy times you have, that you would be uh, a carrier of God's presence wherever you go. In Revelation, I spoke about the last couple of chapters of Revelation. We'll end here this morning. It's the picture of where things are moving, where God is bringing us. Uh, and John writes this, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the order of things, the old order of things has passed away. And then John writes, I did not see a temple in the city click to the next slide, please. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun, the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. What a joy it is to be a part of God's story. I pray that you would experience a foretaste um, of what it means, uh, what revelation is talking about here, as we become the hosting uh, place of God, the dwelling place of God, both individually and corporately. Uh, let me pray again and bless you as you leave. Thank you for coming. Uh, um, we'll see you next week as we as we uh, conclude this part of the Shalom Project. Lord, we thank you again <clears throat> that you love us, that you dwell with us that you have done everything that we cannot do ourselves to be with us. And Lord, we know the only appropriate response is one of worship. Of one of giving you lordship in our lives. In the way that we live, in the way that we speak, in the way that we talk, in the decisions we make. Lord, we say that our lives actually, we acknowledge that our lives were created to honor you, to reflect your beauty, your glory, your goodness to the rest of the world. And Lord, as we do that individually, Lord, I pray that you would move among us as a community, that we would be a foretaste for people of your coming kingdom. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks again for coming. We'll see you next week. (music) Oh, <music> oh,